Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dr. John Chuback. He's a personal development and success training expert and an author. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Selfishly, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on a bunch of things you talk about in the book. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. Yeah, I grew up here in uh, northern New Jersey, uh, right outside of New York City, about uh, 10 minutes from the George Washington Bridge, and um, was born and raised here and um, went off for my education. And um, now I'm back in the same area practicing medicine and doing my personal development coaching and um, uh, sharing sharing what I've learned. Very cool. So what made you want to go into becoming a doctor? Well, it's interesting you ask that, it's very much tied into um, the book, Make Your Own Damn Cheese. The The book is largely about how the human mind is structured in terms of the relationship of the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, and the superconscious mind. And in a nutshell, my father was a physician and my mother was a nurse. Okay. And I was raised in that environment um, and uh, so my subconscious was basically programmed to to become a physician, and um, that was that was not so subtle. My father was very much in in favor of that. But uh, many years later, when I studied personal development, I understood much more deeply how how that works and how powerful that that um, programming can be, and how cautious we need to be with it. So what made you like, cause you still practice as a doctor, correct? I do full time. Yeah. Okay. So what made you also to decide to do, you know, personal development and actually author a book because being a doctor is more than a full-time job. And, and I wrote a book a number of years ago. It's a lot of work on top of that. And then if you're doing um, personal development, you got to be a very busy guy. Yeah, well, I I am busy. Um, again, I sort of grew up in a workaholic environment. My father was an obstetrician right. in private practice, so he was working 24-7. So we didn't really understand the concept of uh, punching a clock in my family. It <laughs> gotcha, was sort of gotcha. a, it was, a, you know, work was, work was a calling in many ways and, and, and it sort of defined, defined you as a person. So I've never really put hours on things in terms of, you know, when the day is done. And I just found a lot of time in between patients or at the end of the day and weekends and so forth to work on my book. The way it really started was after all of my intensive academic and medical and surgical training, right. um, shortly thereafter, I thought I would write a, a, write a book about academic achievement, which I did. That, that book was called Kaboing, 50 Ideas That will springboard you to academic greatness. And and there, it's a bunch of little vignettes about all of the most important pearls I had learned along the way to help students. And then after that, as I got more deeply into personal development, um, then I just had this desire to share what I learned about um, this world of introspection and personal growth and what I had learned there. And I just wanted to share it and pass it along. And I just think it's the most fabulous and powerful material that there is. Okay. Interesting. So what was the define? was there a defining moment where you were like, okay, I need to write, make your own damn cheese. And what exactly is the book about? Well, I was inspired about 17 years ago, I came into practice. And at that time I was doing only open heart surgery. Oh, wow. And although yeah, and although I was quite successful clinically, I was very unhappy professionally. It was really 
a grind and, and the field had changed in a lot of ways that I, I wasn't spending any time at home with, you know, my family and so forth. And I wanted to make a career shift. And, and now I practice office-based surgery, um, with a private clinic doing varicose vein work, laser-based varicose vein work, which is more of a nine to five Monday through Friday job, which has been really great. Gotcha. But at that time, way back when, I was searching for answers, work, searching for direction because I had spent my whole life sort of climbing to this pinnacle in medicine to become an open heart surgeon and found myself to be unhappy. So, so it's sort of the, the famous question, you know, what do you do when you've achieved everything you've set out to do and you find that you're unhappy? Then what do you do? So you keep searching and you study. And that's when I got into personal development material. And one of the first things I read was a book by another physician, Spencer Johnson, which was the classic book, Who Moved My Cheese? Sure. And that book set me on a totally new path. And it, and it reinforced in me that my inner desire and my heart was telling me the truth, what I, what I really wanted and that I should go after it and I should live the life that I want to lead and find happiness where where I could find it. And the fact that you're at the pinnacle of this or the pinnacle of that doesn't mean anything. You know, it doesn't mean squat, as they say, in terms of your, your personal satisfaction and happiness. So, so his book really moved me. And, and then I continued to study personal development, my I, development, I built my practice, I was very successful in that right. And then years later, after many years of studying, I felt I had something to add to the conversation, to add to the, to the discussion. And I sat down and I wrote, make your own damn cheese. And that's how it happened. Interesting. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into what exactly do you talk about in the book? Because you kind of wrote it in an interesting way from, from a, the perspective of Earl. Do you want to kind of talk about why you chose to write it that way and, and how you structure the book? Cause I think it's kind of unique. Yeah. Well, I, I took, you know, I gave a nod to Spencer Johnson and I borrowed the idea of the parable of a mouse living in a maze. Okay. And then I gave numerous other odds to, excuse me, nods to some of my personal, personal development, development mentors like Brian Tracy and Bob Proctor and Price Pritchett and Earl Nightingale and so on and so forth. So I, I named major characters in the book after them. Got you. <clears throat> and um, so I guess Earl represents each of us, the, the mouse in the maze looking for what it, whatever it is that you're looking for. And the other mentors sh show him the path, show him the path in a very, in a very complicated maze. Sure. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into, you talk about understanding the mind. And I think just no matter where you are in your career, some, you obviously, f you have huge highs and lows. Sometimes those happen throughout the day. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on how do you work through something that you know will pass, good or bad? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that, right? Especially when they're doing their own business or, or launching a company. They, they know that they're going to do whatever they can to try to be successful. But, you know, you have these negative thoughts throughout the journey and positive thoughts and kind of everything in between. But how do you kind of manage your mental state and your mind and an understanding of what's going on to, to deal with that? Well, it's a fabulous question. First, I would say a, a small, a small um, caveat here sure. to keep in mind is that I think it's powerful to understand the difference between the word respond and the difference and, and the word react. Okay. Respond and react are often used synonymously, but they're actually different terms. And I'm sort of fascinated by terms like this that are um, very similar and used synonymously, but there are subtle differences. So one of the things we have to work on in personal development is to learn to respond to situations as opposed to reacting. Okay. 
Okay. Again, as a, as a doctor, you know, you see the old, the old movies with the doctor examining the patient. He uses the little reflex hammer. He, yeah, yeah. he t- hits the patient's <laughs> knee and boing, you know, the, fo- the foot goes up. We can't go through life that way. It's a very immature, very undeveloped, um, and very um, gratifying in some ways way to live because somebody says something and you bounce and you jump and you go down their throat or you get bad news from your uh, bank and you explode. Or We all know that going through life with a series of explosions is not valuable. So one of the things that I recommend is, is a very simple practice that I learned some years ago, again, through, through studying. It's called the one breath meditation. Okay. You get some bad news or, you know, challenging news, as they say, a situation arises. The first thing you do before you speak, before you act, before you do anything is just take a nice, long, deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. And you'd be, you'd be shocked how powerful and how therapeutic just that little moment is to give yourself an extra split second of time to calm down and relax. And then rather than reacting, respond and say to yourself and those around you, okay, so this is the situation and this is how we, you know, these are our options and let's look at it. And, and in a much more controlled and relaxed manner, it's so much more effective. So that's, that's the first little piece that I would share. Think about, think about that. And, and, I think it's powerful, responding versus reacting. Now, a little bit more deeply with regard to the book and your question, the essence of the book is the age-old teaching in personal development, which says, you become what you think about. Sure. These are the six most powerful words. You become what you think about. And really, it should be modified slightly to say, you become what you think about most of the time, because we have all kinds of thoughts. But the things that we think about over and over and over are the things that tend to come true. Um, For myself, I I thought incessantly for 20 years about becoming a cardiac surgeon uh, before I became a cardiac surgeon. And I think think many people will tell you that about their profession, professional athletes or writers or pilots or whomever. You have to go through that and see that and believe that in your mind's eye long before it's transmuted into the physical realm. Sure. So this becomes, this becomes the, the essence that in order to deal with stress, in order to deal with high pressure situations, et cetera, that you're describing, you must have control of your mind. You must have control of your thinking mind, the conscious mind. And by by years of practice and gaining mastery of the thinking mind, you will reprogram your subconscious mind to be a mind which is much more peaceful, much more responsive, much less reactive, and much more in control of your life and and allow you to make better decisions and have better behaviors. No, I I think that's really good advice. But where do you start on that? Because it's clearly not an overnight thing. It's not a few weeks. It's not a few months. It probably takes years to get to that point. Is that fair to say? Well, I think that it is fair to say that. But on on the other hand, it's not a destination per se. It's okay. like everything else of great value in life. It is a journey. Sure. And Cervantes is quoted as saying, the journey is better than the inn. It's that process of getting to that beautiful place that really holds all the value. So each day, now I'm I'm now known as a personal development uh, teacher, okay, right. an expert, um, and I think it's you know fair to to give me that title. But on the by the same token, I'm a student. Interesting. I'm, I'm always reading. I'm always I'm reading the works of other people. I'm watching videos made by colleagues and mentors. I'm um, looking in. I'm looking inside. I'm looking outside for guidance and so forth. So we're all on the path. Um, and what I like to say is, if 
what I like to say best is the the destination is the path. In other words, if you're on the path, then you've succeeded because you're constantly moving toward betterment. You're moving toward greater enlightenment and greater awareness. So if you if you're not perfect, you have to give yourself a break and you have to, you know, be compassionate with yourself and say to yourself, Hey, look, at least I'm on the path. At least I'm working at this. I'm, I'm learning. I'm true. I'm, I'm, I'm reading. I'm uh, trying. And this is, this is the best that we can ask of ourselves. Interesting. So in your case, obviously you spent a number of years working on something, you achieved it. You did not enjoy it. I'm curious how did you deal with that? Because obviously you said you spent a bunch of time kind of figuring out what you'd, you'd want to do and, and you transitioned out of that, but that's gotta be really, really tricky and hard in itself, right? Because you spent so much time trying to achieve something, you achieved it and then you, you didn't ultimately want it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of people find themselves in that in that position. You know, in becoming a cardiac surgeon, after finishing the 12th grade in high school, uh, when I went through, it required another 15 years, that was the shortest route, four years of college, four years of medical school, five years of general surgery, and two years of cardiovascular surgery. And like so many things in life, we paint a picture in our mind as to what something is going to be like, but we don't really know what it's like until we've done it. Sure. You can't really be a cardiac surgeon until you become a cardiac surgeon and know what the lifestyle entails and the hours and the responsibility and you know the technical aspect and so on and so forth. So you won't really know until you get there. You can't ultimately make the judgment about whether this is a good fit for you until you get there. Now, some people go into professions where the road is shorter, so it's not as painful to say, well, I've traveled a 15-year road with 110 and 120-hour weeks um, to realize that this probably isn't the best profession for me. I'm just just not getting the the pleasure out of it that I assumed that I would. What what I call the juice-to-squeeze ratio isn't there. I mean, now that being said, I think it's a a fascinating caveat that a lot of people are mistaken about. And I don't say this to pat myself on the back, on my back, because my track record is there. There's a, you know, state report card in cardiac surgery for New Jersey. And my numbers were outstanding. My results were phenomenal. Okay. So to think, this is a very important point, to think that because you're good at something, you're going to like it is a misconception. Sure. By the same token, I knew some cardiac surgeons and surgeons in other fields who weren't the greatest surgeons in the world, but they loved it. And you often wonder, they say, wow, this guy really struggles technically with his hands and this and that. He seems to be, you know, maybe not all thumbs, but he's certainly not a gifted surgeon, but he, he just loves it. So you, um, you can't expect that just because you're effective at something or proficient or successful commercially uh, or professionally financially that that that's going to give you give you happiness and that's a big part of what the book is about you know traveling that maze to find that corner that suits you not someone else not what your imagination was not what you supposed it was going to be but what it really is so it's a it's a you know it's a fascinating concept no, interesting. So I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the happiness and satisfaction and the money money topic, I think, plays into both of those because they're, they're kind of the, those three things. I feel like you, you can never I feel like you can never have all three. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I don't know if you can't have all three. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you can, but I, I don't think that there's one of them that I don't think you should ever really have, and that's satisfaction. Okay. So, so it's interesting. Let's talk about money first, because okay. you know, money, money is a, a subject that makes a lot of people uncomfortable to talk about, and a lot of people have preconceived notions about money that are, again, are imprinted upon us as as young people, as children, that money's the root of all evil and so on and so forth. And 
you know, money leads to a lot of problems and trouble. And money isn't everything. You can't buy, you can't buy love, all these kinds of things. Let's take money isn't everything. This is okay. one of my, my favorite little teaching points. Obviously, money isn't everything, right? Nothing is everything. Money is sure. money. Sure. But that being said, for the role that money plays in the world, there's nothing which can replace it. It's, it's, a, it's like oxygen. Oxygen is not the only gas in the air that we breathe. In fact, the, the oxygen content of the air that we breathe is only 21%. Most is nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and other gases. Right. But for the role that oxygen plays with regard to your breathing and respiration and survival, nothing can replace it. You can't take away the oxygen and double up on the carbon dioxide. That right. won't work. Okay. So for the role that money plays, there's nothing to replace it. And the reality is that in the, in what we call in the book, the physical maze, the, which is the, the, the real world that we live in, you need money. You need yeah. money. You need money. You're right. I mean, so, so I don't, I don't think that earning money or, um, building wealth, for example, is, is a bad thing. I don't subscribe to that mentality. I think that as long as you're earning money legally and ethically and so forth, um, that it's a perfectly valid um, ambition and goal because money comes comes in handy in a lot of places. So that's number one. Now, if we go to satisfaction versus happiness, I think you should make it a goal to be happy. If you could be happy every day of your life, I would say, you know, that's fantastic. Good on you, as they say. That, that's terrific. It, we're not always happy every day, but that would be a terrific goal. Happiness is an important part of human experience, and it makes life much more pleasurable to be happy. On the contrary, satisfaction and happiness are not synonymous, once again. I think there's a subtle and very important difference. Many of the most successful people have been dissatisfied with the way things are. And we're, we're taught as children, again, you know, Kevin, you should really learn to be satisfied. When are you going to be satisfied? You know, what's with you and all these ambitions and goals and podcasts and radio shows and so on? So, I mean, why can't you be like the rest of us? Just take it easy. Be, you know, learn to be satisfied as if dissatisfaction is somehow bad. Well, Interesting. in my office here, staring back at me, I have a bunch of pictures of people like Sir Edmund Hillary and Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and the Wright brothers and, and the list goes on. Now, the Wright brothers, for example, two of my favorites, were bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio. Interesting. Okay. okay. They, they brought mechanized flight to the world. They changed man, uh, humanity. They sure. changed the future of the planet. The way that we live now is totally, totally unrecognizable compared to, let's say, the, the first decade of the 20th century. It's sure. two, two different planets. It's two different worlds that we live in because of these two brothers who were bicycle mechanics. They weren't aeronautical engineers. There was no aeronautical engineering school. There was no flight. Yeah, there were no airplanes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why did they do that? They Now, I've read many biographies about them, watched many uh, um, documentaries about them, etc. I've never seen anything to to imply that they were unhappy. But they were obviously dissatisfied with getting around on a bicycle or in a car or on, a, on, on the back of a horse or in a boat or a ship. So their dream, their goal, their ambition was for human beings to fly at great speeds, at great heights, over great distances in short period of times in a, fly, in a mechanized flying machine. And through their dissatisfaction, they were propelled into a creative state. So this is what I always teach, that dissatisfaction is a creative state, or at least it can be. You don't want to be the guy who walks around complaining, you know, oh, taxes are too high and this and so on and so forth, and, and just bitch and moan. You want to be the person who that dissatisfaction with the status quo, whether it's the public school system in your town or your bank account or your uh, uh, the measurement of your waist or your weight or your blood pressure, whatever it is that you're dissatisfied with should be a motivator 
to put you into a creative state in terms of figuring out how to make things better. And if you can do that, it's a very, very powerful tool. So I try to stay dissatisfied and happy, and I try to keep some money in the bank too. <laughs> no, I, it's it's fair. Like the thing that, like I do fine. I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. But the the thing that I always found interesting about it is, like money. Sure, you could argue money doesn't buy happiness, but it sure seems to buy a lot of freedom. Like anybody that I know that actually has a significant amount of money they seem to be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want. I get that's a very oversimplification, but for the most part, they live a lot better than majority of people. And to your point a few minutes ago, if you worked hard for that legally and ethically, I don't see anything wrong with that. And people that are trying to work hard to achieve that, if that's what motivates them, good for you, right? Like that's that's awesome. The thing that I want to ask the question around that though is some people are willing to sacrifice their happiness at all costs for this magical big dollar amount in their bank account and that's where I think that that's where I, I think maybe the root of all evil is is kind of the that money quote right or 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 what are your thoughts around that well I think you know, again, I'm not a, a biblical scholar by, by any means, but I, th I think actually the original quotation is something more along the lines of the love of money is the root of all evil. Sure. Money is just money. Money is just an object. And really, it's just an idea more than anything else. And, it, you know, there, there are philosophies that, that say it doesn't, doesn't even really exist. It's more of a, it's more of a construct. Um, because there's all this money now, but you know, in the beginning there was no money. So money is obviously being, being produced by people and more and more money is being, is being generated. So with, with regard to, let's go back to one of the statements that, that you made at the beginning there, which is I'm not rich by any stretch of the imagination. This brings me to one of my favorite ideas, which is the idea of relativity. Okay. Now, Compared to whom? I suppose. Right? I guess. Okay. They're, right? Well, there's 3 billion people on the planet who don't have access to clean water. There's 3 billion people on the planet who still live in earthen homes. Sure. So if we, if we were to take them, half the world's population, and say, how's Kevin doing? They say, Kevin's rich. Yeah, really that's rich. fair. Right? So that's fair. But, but then again, compared to Bill Gates, you and I are – living in squalor. I mean, we're poor, we're poverty stricken. So, so that's one, that's one of the, one of the really important things when it comes to happiness, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to income, when it comes to our, our appearance, when it comes to a lot of things, it's what we call the, the law of relativity. Everything is relative. I'm fat compared to who I'm ugly compared to who I'm tall compared to whom I'm short compared to whom, right? I'm, I'm, I'm depressed compared to whom? You know, yeah, I'm smart guess, yeah. compared okay. to whom I'm a dummy compared to whom. So there's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody dumber. There's so in the end, we have to be ourselves. You, you can be only Kevin and I can be John and that's the way that it's going to be. But hopefully we want to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. We don't want to, as you say, sacrifice our happiness for money. That's that's uh, absurd. That would be a waste of a life. Again, I think the most important reason we're here is to enjoy and for expression and expansion and for serving other people. That's my personal belief. doesn't make it correct, but that's my belief. To be here, to be uh, Ebenezer Scrooge and be the richest man in town that everybody hates and live by yourself in the dark and, uh, you know, uh, be a Grinch, I don't, th I don't think that's a great aspiration. I think, I think people are smarter smarter than that. That being said, it brings me to another interesting set of words, happiness versus fun. Sure. You see, I, I'm a surgeon and I do numerous procedures every day here in the office and it's a big responsibility. Sure. Okay. We're using a 750 degree laser, putting wow. it inside somebody's vascular system it, while they're awake under local anesthesia, et cetera. It's a big responsibility. I don't go skipping through the hallways uh, of my office uh, singing Kumbaya. It's a, it's, a, 
important job. It's a stressful job, as many jobs are. It's your job. It's work. But that doesn't mean I'm not happy. But I'm not always having fun. Fun is reserved for special occasions, parties, get-togethers, gatherings, celebrations, graduations, weddings, right? It, but to have the um, expectation, which many people sell, which I think is um, – a scam, quite fr frankly, that, oh, well, if, you, if, you, if you're not having fun every day at work and if you don't get out of bed, you know, jumping for joy, you can't wait to get to the office. I mean, come on. I mean, I guess there are a handful of people in the world who live that way, but uh, I don't know what their occupation is. Yeah, Most of us, you know, I say work is a four-letter word. I mean, it's as a, as, an, as a mature adult, as a responsible individual, this is something that you have to do. You have to work not only to earn money to take care of yourself and take care of your, your loved ones and family and so forth, but also to contribute, yeah. to, to serve others. To do, we're all serving other people. Look at your program here. You bring me on as a guest. You bring your other guests on to have discussions so that others can hopefully hear something that resonates with them. Totally. And that they can take take away and make their life better. As a physician, it's obvious, right? Sure. But but as every person, a school teacher, a crossing guard outside of the school, the policeman, the fireman, the baker, the candlestick maker, what are we doing? We're finding a way to serve others because ultimately we're all in sales. We sure. all have some service or product to sell. And the only thing that people ever buy, this is one of my, this, when I understood this, it was a great aha moment for me. I love passing it along. The only thing that people ever buy is improvement. Interesting. Right? Yeah, you, you, Yeah, right? I mean, you go to the doctor because you want to feel better. You listen to Kevin's show because you want to be better. You want to feel better. You want to, you know, improve. You go to school to, to learn more, to improve. You, you buy a new suit because you look better when you, go, when you go out into the workplace or when you're attending a party. The only thing, you could try to sell anything, but the only thing people will buy generally is improvement. And so that means we all have to be out there serving others. And that's not always so much fun, but it should give us a sense of fulfillment deep inside that only human beings, I think, can experience it. When you do something for someone else, yeah, it's great to be paid for it, but it's even better to know that you know you've you've affected somebody's life in a in a positive way, no matter how little or big that 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 is. Holding a door for somebody, you feel like, wow, I guess I am a gentleman, you know? Yeah, interesting. So then, why are so many people? Do you think fine with the status quo, or are they just scared to get out of that and push themselves out of that? Well, I think fear is a, is a huge part of it, um, but the status quo is the status quo because it is what what it says it is. I mean, that's how most people live. And you know, again, there's an old sort of joke that says, you know, fifty percent of all the people you ever meet in your life are going to be below average. I mean, mathematically, I guess that's that's a true statement. But the reality is that most of us. Everyone grows up in, a, in an environment. It's sure. impossible not to. Everybody grows up in a, in a culture, in a neighborhood, in a certain socioeconomic um, bracket, in a certain educational bracket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before the age, and this goes back to make your own damn cheese and how the subconscious mind functions. Before the age of about six or seven, the child's mind is wide open. The subconscious mind is wide open. It doesn't it doesn't make any choices. Um, it, it doesn't know right from wrong, good for ba from bad. So everything that you're exposed to as a child sinks right into the subconscious mind, which is like a fertile garden. And whatever you plant there will grow with abundance. So typically, we become like the people that we're around which is the status quo for us. Now everybody has a different status quo. But whatever environment you grow up in, that's typically going to dictate the way that you, that you live. So you say, well, if my parents lived in this town and it was good enough for them, they're good people. They love me. They took care of me. I love them. What's wrong with living in this town? 
I'm going to stay here too. I'm going to not only live in this town, I'm going to live in this on the same block. Better yet, I may never even move out. I just stay in my room that I grew up in. Okay. Okay. Sure. So the status quo for most people is comfortable, it's safe, and it's what they know. It's not until you can really break free of that and look at different ways of living, other areas geographically, financially, educationally, and follow your own. Once you allow yourself to look inside and listen to your inner voice and know who it is that you would really like to be and where you'd like to go. Maybe the static, maybe after that process, the status quo is still good enough. Maybe it's what you really want. But I would prefer people to have that understanding of how their mind really works, how it's structured, to have the tools to be able to look inside and make that decision for themselves. There's, there's an interesting um, little um, model that I use to help people see that. I call it the crab phenomenon. Okay. You know, they say that crab fishermen, when they go out crabbing, and they they collect these crabs. They just throw them in these big uh, buckets of seawater. They don't have to put lids or covers over them, because as the crabs try to climb out of the bucket, invariably the other crabs grab them and pull them right back in. And so what you wind up is with is this churning bucket of of life. These these crabs just rolling over each other, but nobody ever escapes the bucket. If you look around in your life and you think about your own life and your friends and people you grew up with and relatives and so on and so forth in various neighborhoods and 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 so forth you'll you'll see a lot of I think you'll uh, you'll see a lot of similarity in that in that little metaphor that most people never get out of the bucket and and the people around them the people who care most about them who love them the most the mo- that they have the most in common with are the biggest culprits for not allowing them to sca- escape the bucket they said well why would you go to college nobody in our family's ever gone to college why would you leave new jersey it's fantastic we're 10 minutes from new york yeah, but we don't really, really, we rarely go to New York. Yeah, but it's still, it's a, it's good that we're there just in case we ever wanted to go see a Broadway show. But we haven't seen one in 10 years. Yeah, but this is where we grew up. This is where your mother and father were from, your grandfather was from. Okay. So, you know, very few people leave. Sure. Until, until they have some awareness or enlightenment or some reason. There's a job that forces them to go. But generally, you'll see that if you look, and you, you take notice now, you'll see the crab phenomenon happening all over. Sure. And it's not your enemies. It's not your enemies holding you back. It's your your friends, your family, your loved ones, the people that care most about you will give you a thousand reasons why you should stay right where you are, just the way you are with them. It's a fascinating phenomenon. Sure. So how do you overcome that? Because I think a lot of people never do, and they just get trapped, and then they regret it later on in life. Well, I think the the most important thing in all of this is understanding how your mind works. Why do I behave the way I do? Why do I have the results that I have? You see, the results that you see in your life are always a reflection of your actions, and your actions are always a reflection of your subconscious mind, because your subconscious mind is almost exclusively in control of your habitual actions, which is... 95% of what we do is habitual behavior. So it all goes back. The results are a byproduct of your behavior. Your behavior is a byproduct of your subconscious m- mind. And your subconscious mind is a byproduct of what you've been thinking about most of the time and what you've been exposed to and who you've been exposed to and how they've been talking and how they've been behaving and so on and so forth. But the the thing to understand that I'm going to share that with you, if you'll let me from sure. the book, the thing to understand is that at first, the thinking mind, what you think about over and over and over, percolates through what we call the psychic barrier into the subconscious mind, the non-thinking mind, which drives all of these actions and behaviors and yields your results. But with enough time, the subconscious mind, which is now driving all of the actions and so on and so forth, determining your results, 
begins to affect your thinking. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So let me share with you a quick little poem from the book, which is an adaptation from one of my great mentors, Dr. Dennis Waitley, who's very elderly now. But this is an adaptation from, from his words. He says, I have a little robot that goes around with me. I tell him what I'm thinking. I tell him what I see. I tell my little robot all my hopes and fears. It listens and remembers everything it hears. At first, my little robot followed my command. But after years of training, it's gotten out of hand. It doesn't care what's right or wrong, nor what is false or true. No matter what I try now, it tells me what to do. So this is, this is the relationship between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. It's sort of like the story of uh, Dr. Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein builds the monster to carry out his commands and to do what he wishes the monster to, to do. But once the monster has, has come to life, the monster then starts abusing Dr. Frankenstein, his creator. Yeah. Interesting. So you have to, these subconscious beliefs, which are so powerful, then they start to dictate how we think. And the, then the thinking reinforces the, sub, the subconscious and it, and, and it becomes a vicious cycle. So how do you get out of it is to understand that, is to read a book like Make Your Own Damn Cheese, see the, the diagrams there, see how the conscious mind and the subconscious mind are linked, how they're linked to the superconscious mind and what we call the law of vibration and the law of attraction, which so many people have heard of the law of attraction, which is a secondary law, really. The law of vibration is the primary primary law. But once you understand how a thing works, then you can take control of it. If I put you in the car, I say, take me to the station. You say, well, I don't know how to drive. I don't know. What are these pedals? Which is the brake? Which is the gas? Sure. What is the, you know? Someone has to, and no one teaches this in school. I mean, I went to school until I was 34 years old. I became a heart surgeon. I can do a heart transplant. I can put in a mechanical heart. Okay. I've done all those things. Nobody ever taught me how the mind worked. I had psychiatry in medical school. They taught, they taught us how to treat diseases of the mind, illness, neurosis, psychosis, anxiety, depression, et cetera, but not how the healthy mind worked and how to optimize the power of this magnificent, magnificent um, gift you've been given. Interesting. So how come blue sky thinking is so important? Oh, blue sky thinking is everything. You know, blue sky thinking is the way children think. Yeah. You sit in, right? You sit mm-hmm. in the classroom and you look out, if you're anything like me, you look out the window and you think, number one, I'd like to get out of here, right? Sure. I don't want to be in this classroom. This is boring. It's hot. They're telling me to sit down, be quiet, fold my hands, eyes forward. You know, I don't want to, I want to be out there where it's free. I want to be, I want to go out in the sunshine and play in the grass and, you know, hang out with my friends and pick the flowers and run and, and, and play sports and swim and whatever. So what blue sky thinking says is how would my life look if everything were absolutely perfect, exactly the way that I wanted it, who would I who would I be? What level of education would I have? What would my profession be? How much money would I earn? How much money would I have saved? Where would I live? How would I live? Where would I travel? How would I get there? Do I travel first class or do I travel coach? Do I take a train? Do I hitchhike? There's no right answer. Sure. You know, as I've said before, the 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 it may be your great dream. I mean, it might be an exciting adventure for you to say, you know what? I know it's dangerous. I know people advise against it, but I'm going to hitchhike from here to California just to get the experience. Sure. Now I might say, well, I'd rather fly, you know, in a private jet if I could. Sure. But that's okay. You have your goal. You have your dream. You have your blue sky picture of the world as it, as it exists in your mind. And I have mine. That's the beauty of it. Not the, the book is, is never intended to 
um, assume that it knows or it can teach the reader what that blue sky picture looks like. That blue sky picture is different for each and every one of us. The key is being honest and true with yourself and saying, this is what I want. I don't want to be a heart surgeon. I'm a great heart surgeon. I'm a board certified cardiac surgeon. You know, I'm practicing five, six years. I've had a phenomenal run, but I'm disgusted getting, getting up every day and going to work. I don't want to do this. I'd rather go and treat, you know, venous disease in the office, sure. you know, a- ambulatory surgery, not so heavy, not so time consuming, not 24 seven, not phone calls in the middle. Okay, fine. Does that mean we don't need heart surgeons? Of course not. We need heart surgeons. Sure. And we need school teachers and we need sculptors and we need painters and we need musicians. The, the, the importance of blue sky is to make sure you're not a crab just being, you know, pulled under again and again and again by all of the people around you, the ideas you've been inundated with, the belief systems that you've come to accept as true. Just make sure that you're you're a crab swimming in that bucket because you want to be a crab swimming in that bucket. But if you're not, if that's not who you see yourself as, you have every right to get the hell out of there. Sure. That's what what the book tries to point out. No, I I 100% agree with you. So I'm curious to touch on the millennial stuff a little bit. As a millennial, I'm 36, just so you have some context. Um. I obviously understand some of the millennial stuff. I also don't understand some of the millennial stuff. I also think it's great that I'm part of a generation that is basically pigeonholed as complete and utter, utterly lazy and, and kind of a failure right out of, of the gate because I think if you literally pick the bar off the ground, people are impressed. And if you try to move it up the ladder a little bit, People are like amazed. It, it, so I, I think for me, it's kind of used that as a motivational thing for me. But I, I'm curious, why do you think so many millennials kind of struggle with some of that stuff that we've talked about today? You know, I think about this a lot. And I get these questions a lot about millennials and Gen Zers and so on and yeah, so like, forth. Hasn't every generation had all the same problems? Yeah, I think so. I really do. You know, I think that in many ways, things are always about the way they've always been. Um, and I think that every generation sort of mocks and ridicules and scorns the generation that comes after them. Everybody, you know, everybody's parents walk two ways uphill in the snow to school and so on and so forth. I have in my primary practice, um, you know, a significant number of millennials working for me and I think they're phenomenal. I mean, they're bright, they're imaginative, they're creative, they're hardworking, um, they're well-educated, they're sharp, they're technically savvy. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I, I buy into, into all of that. On the other hand, I think that there is probably a generational, um, there is a generational um, rubric that says, you know, they want to enjoy their life a little bit more. They don't want to just waste away in the office, uh, cranking out 80 and hundred hour weeks. Um, but that being said, I think there are plenty of them who do that. I mean, if you speak to young, uh, young people who are in medical training or in, um, the legal field or in tech and writing code in Silicon Valley and, and on and on and on, I think there are, you know, there's still a segment, a subset of, of society, which I think it has always been really, who are tremendous workers, workaholics, and, they, and they, they're ambitious and they're driven and, and so on. So I'm not, I, I think that, Kevin, I think that you're pointing out that maybe they get a bad rap. And, I, and I, I think I agree with that. But it works well for the media. I think it's a good story. Sure. It's a good it's a good headline for a lot of magazine articles and so forth. And if there's some truth to it, you know, so be it. But there's always been the hippie generation and there's been hate Ashbury and there's been, uh, you know, lots of, lots of young people who were sort of going their own way in every generation. Um, 
but I think overall the generation is doing just phenomenally, phenomenally well. Look at look at what all the millennials bring to the world of tech, which has had such a tremendous impact on the quality of our lives and the efficiency and and um, simplicity of our lives. I, I think it's fantastic. I think they're a great group personally. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I guess for me, it's just kind of funny. I, I guess it's, it's just funny how every generation gets pigeonholed as something, whether it's true or not. I think you kind of need to use it to your advantage if you can, right? I think that's kind of how I see it anyway. Um, but, but John, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and the book? Sure. Well, the book is available, um, of course, on Amazon, and uh, it's available in Barnes and Nobles across the country. Um, in fact, it just came out, I think, in over 2,000 Rite Aids as well in their wow. little okay. inspirational book section. Yeah, thank you very much. And you, you can find me at ChewbackEducation.com, uh, where you can find out more about the book and about me and other um services and products that we offer. Hopefully we'll be doing some seminars in the, in the not too distant future. And in social media, you can find me at John Chuback MD on Instagram. And you could find uh, me at Chuback Education on Facebook. And uh, those are all the places I think I can be found. <laughs> and Chuback is spelled C-H-U-B-A-C-K, just for, for people. Cause... Thank you very much. Yes, with a K at the end, not an H. <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right, John. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day, man. Same here. Thanks a million. It was great. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.